This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. Today we will learn what it means to do Agile right. I've dedicated a series of shows exploring the qualities, tools, tactics, and mindset leaders from all sectors may need to navigate unsettling times and transform order out of chaos. The authors and thinkers presented in this series offer insights and advice applicable to all sectors, but most importantly, the public sector. What is Agile and why is it so often misunderstood? How do you scale Agile? And what is Agile leadership? I will explore these questions and so much more with Daryl Rigby, co-author with Sarah Elk and Steve Berez of Doing Agile Right, Transformation Without the Chaos. Daryl, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Oh, nice to be with you. Thank you very much. Daryl, what is Agile? And perhaps you could outline for us the history of its evolution. Sure, I'd be happy to. It is a very overused word, and I'm afraid that a lot of people use it without knowing what it means. So it's a great question. Agile really is both a mindset and a method for improving innovation through deeper customer collaboration and adaptive testing and learning. It has real advantages in unpredictable situations, the kinds of situations like we face today and in the foreseeable future. If you compare it to traditional innovation approaches, most of those tend to start with an assumption that senior executives should think and predict the future, while workers should do what they're told. We talk about that as predict, command, and control innovation. That is not agile innovation. Agile methods improve the productivity of people substantially by unleashing their capabilities and testing and adapting. So agile teams are typically small, usually five to nine people. They are customer-obsessed. They're multidisciplinary. They're dedicated 100% of their time to the team. They are psychologically safe, collectively intelligent, they're autonomous teams, and they have a lot of fun working together. Typically, once they begin working in agile teams, they don't want to go back to other ways of working. And I think a lot of people believe that agile came out of technology, but that's not really true. A lot of historians will trace agile back to Francis Bacon's articulation of the scientific method in 1620. Not sure I would go back quite that far, but I would certainly go back to the 1930s when the physicist and statistician Walter Schuhart at Bell Labs 
started applying continuous improvement cycles. And then when W. Edwards Deming grew interested in Schuller's work and popularized it, Agile really started taking off. And then in 2001, a group of people who called themselves organizational anarchists uh, met together in Snowbird, Utah. They outlined the values and the principles of Agile. And from there on out, everybody that conformed to those Agile principles and practices referred to themselves as Agile practitioners. You point out in your book, Doing Agile Right, Transformation Without the Chaos, Agile method involves specific processes and terminologies. Could you give us a brief overview of the method itself? And would you also define such terms as scrums and sprints? It's a little geeky, isn't it? You, you got to love the, the principles and practices without falling in love with the language. In fact, I spent years sort of fighting Agile just because the language was so weird. But let me describe a little bit about how the, the concept works. Because a sprint really is just a cycle of work. And usually in Agile, we try to keep the cycle of work before we deliver output to be tested with customers to less than a month. Often it's two weeks and sometimes less than two weeks. So a sprint is just a work cycle. That's all it is. And a scrum is just a fancy term for huddling at the beginning of the morning for team members to share with each other, here's what I did yesterday, and here's what I'm planning to do today, and here's what's getting in my way. Here are the barriers that are keeping me from being able to work effectively. And Agile abhors work in process. So Agile favors breaking very large problems into small modules, fixing each of those modules in small batches, and then getting in front of customers as quickly as possible to say, do you like the work that I did? And if so, then we stay on that path. And if customers say, mm, not really, not so much, and the person may say, well, I thought that's what you told me to do. Well, it may have been, but now that I look at it, that's not what I like. So it's really getting these team members to work as a team, bringing together multidisciplinary expertise. They work on the highest priorities first. They get those out into the market and try to test whether it's running into any deal killers or not. And if it's not, then they keep working their way down the priority list and get things into the market for testing as quickly as they possibly can. What are the reasons for Agile's rapid spread and how does it liberate uh, the innovative spirit that so many organizations may stifle? It's a great question. And in a word, the problem is bureaucracy. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not that bureaucracy is inherently evil. In fact, it can be very helpful in preserving the status quo. It's just a bit like kudzu, and it's getting a little out of control and suffocating everything in its path. So I, unlike 
some Agile practitioners, I do not believe that the purpose of Agile is to kill bureaucracy. Bureaucracy was developed to make people work as predictably as possible, ultimately as predictable as machines. And people become very efficient in bureaucracy. They don't always work on the right things, but they become very efficient. So employers sort of struck a deal with employees. They said, sure, you're going to be miserable at work, but you'll be very efficient. So we'll pay you, and then you can use that money to buy happiness once you get off work. And that's the deal. There was a a great German sociologist, Max Weber, who was the first to offer a systematic description of bureaucracy. He understood all the efficiencies, but he just warned that it could create a soulless iron cage that would trap people in dehumanizing organizations and limit their potential. Sadly, he was right. Most people today are working in pure bureaucracies and most feel disengaged from their work. So the other problem is the bureaucracy is just terrible at innovating. The bureaucracy works well when it's organizational tasks, what to deliver and how to deliver it are clear and stable and predictable. Unfortunately, innovation by definition meets none of those criteria. So the thing that Agile brings is the ability to let people work like humans. It restores self-respect and confidence. It gives people autonomy. It values their opinions as much as the opinions of senior executives. And in many of my training programs, I really have heard groups of people working on Agile teams come together and say, honestly, I will never go back to the old way of working. If the company puts me back into it, I'll leave and find a place where I can work in Agile teams. It's just so much more productive. It is so much more humanizing and fun. I'll never go back. How can this method, the Agile method, help organizations reshape both what they offer clients and more importantly, how they operate internally? Yeah, that's a great question also because I often say Agile is for innovation. And when I say innovation, people say, ah, so you're talking about developing new products and services. The answer is yes, I am talking about Agile as a way to develop new products and services. But not only that, because Agile is also a great way for improving the business processes that deliver those products and services. That's innovation also. If I can improve the processes for making products and services, I can make those products and services better. Furthermore, it's a way of improving the technology that improves those business processes. So the way I think about it is, yes, Agile is for innovation, developing new products and services, the business processes that make those products and services and the technology that improves those business processes for making those products and services. The key is that every Agile team has a customer, and they always work from the customer back. 
So if you're working on a business process, you have a customer. It may not be an end consumer, but it's an internal customer that is relying on your product in order to get done what they need done. And I've had many people talk to me over the years about, I never used to think of my work as having a customer. I worked in the finance department or I worked in legal and I never thought of internal people as my customers, but now I do. And now I care about their feedback. And now I worry about whether I'm really meeting their needs or not. So it has an amazing way to think, to cause every team to say, I have a customer and my job is to satisfy that customer's needs profitably. You know, as with so many good ideas, how does the practice sometimes belie the promise in the context of Agile? I'm a business consultant. And so I've seen the power and potential of Agile in a lot of companies. And I do count myself among Agile's biggest fans. But as with so many good ideas, Agile has spread so rapidly that sometimes I worry it's going to spin out of control. Along with the companies that are using it well, are a lot of companies that have either misunderstood or are misusing the ideas. Sometimes they're being egged on by some zealot who promises the world and blows expectations way out of proportion. Sometimes they sign on to a big agile transformation before they know anything about what such an effort might actually entail. They may use agile terminology to camouflage distinctly non-agile objectives. And by that, I mean, it is not unusual for senior executives to believe that agile means you will do what I say faster than before. And that's just not what we have in mind. So the you know, for the last 27 years, something like that, I think I've been studying management tools and techniques inside companies. And one of the things that I have found is that tools, new tools and techniques, I think of business reengineering, I think of quality circles that got thrown onto the scrap heap of management manias. And the reasons were that they were used in places that they never should have been used. They became euphemisms for bad things. Reengineering, for example, became a euphemism for layoffs. And often when I walk into companies, I hear a lot of people throwing around agile jargon, but not really understanding what it means. That's my big fear is that it'll turn into a fad. And it, its enormous potential will be lost. Uh, Daryl, in your book, Doing Agile Right, Transformation Without the Chaos, you identify three toxic mistakes organizations can make when pursuing agile initiatives. Could you elaborate on them? I'd love to. The first mistake is believing that agile should be used everywhere. There are a lot, lot of agile gurus that pitch agile as a panacea that has to replace bureaucracy everywhere. In every company, 
in every business unit, in every function. That's just wrong. For a moment, just consider the adverse consequences of encouraging wide variation, on-the-spot experimentation, and decentralized decision-making, all the hallmarks of Agile, in areas such as food or drug safety, maybe anti-discrimination and harassment policies, accounting standards, aircraft safety, quality controls, manufacturing standards. That would be wrong. Every company has to run its business getting standardized products out the door and delivering predictable services to customers. Every company needs bureaucratic structures and procedures in the right places at the right time. So we believe that Agile has its place, bureaucracy has its place. Agile is just a tool. It is not the answer to every problem. The second mistake is senior executives believing that it's only for their subordinates. In other words, let's have you folks do Agile, and I'll keep doing business the way I've always done business. And so they create high-powered program management offices to drive the change. The office generates detailed budgets and milestones and execution roadmaps and Gantt charts and stoplight reporting systems. They run the transition itself very much like a bureaucracy. And if you think about how ironic it is to say we want to get to an agile enterprise, so let's use more bureaucracy to create it. That's just crazy. And an agile dies on the vine when it is micromanaged from above. So the second toxic mistake is not recognizing that senior leaders themselves have to behave in agile ways. They have to believe it. They have to demonstrate to the organization that they practice it because everybody in the organization wants to be like the senior leaders in the organization. And so if the senior leaders are late to everything because they're working on 10 different things and, oh, sorry, I was just talking to such and such a shareholder, that sets all the wrong examples. And then I think the third toxic mistake is trying to use Agile as a quick fix. That it's going to begin by laying off 30% of the people and reassigning them to completely new positions. And we send people away to become scrum masters in two days of training well, I'm sorry, that is just not enough training. That's not enough experience. That's not enough capability to unleash the potential of Agile. It's not a quick fix. And it's not something where you can just copy what other people have done. You need to develop the approach for your own organization and not just try to do what you've read in an article. You know, given your research, uh, Daryl, how can leaders find the right balance between agile and bureaucracy? 
Well, the answer is you have to use agile approaches to building an agile organization that you test and learn your way into becoming an agile enterprise. The problem with trying to do it all at once is that you don't develop the skills to do it properly. The ones that have the greatest success, we watch go through three distinct phases. The first phase is experimenting with agile teams and developing the expertise so that they're delivering extraordinary results. The team members are euphoric working with it and they tell their other teammates, their friends in the company, you should do this. This is fun. This is better. So you're delivering great results, maybe with five or 10 teams, you're showing how it works. And then you work towards scaling agile. You roll it out in waves. You add agile to more functions and more programs, and you take on bigger projects that may require a hundred agile teams working together. And eventually you'll be able to work your way towards an agile enterprise that really does have this correct balance. But you're going to have to test and learn your way into it. You can't start by saying, oh, I can predict perfectly every part of the organization that needs to do Agile. Let's just launch 500 Agile teams, restructure the organization into these teams, and expect it to work. It just can't possibly happen. And we're watching a lot of organizations that started off on that path And they're now running into a whole bunch of problems. Much of my work these days is fixing Agile done wrong, as opposed to launching new Agile initiatives inside companies. What does it mean to scale Agile? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. My guest today is Daryl Rigby, co-author of Doing Agile Right, Transformation Without the Chaos. Daryl, in your book, Doing Agile Right, you introduce the story of the fictitious Irresistible Snacks, which is a composite based on hundreds of companies. What two sets of facts does this story illustrate about Agile? 
We hope that the story illustrates two things. One is how Agile teams actually work, because the Agile team lies at the very heart of an Agile enterprise. So if you don't understand Agile teams, you can't understand Agile as an operating philosophy. And that's why we use this particular example is it just, we think, clearly lays out how does an Agile team work? What are the problems that they run into? How do they overcome those problems? And really get beyond the jargon to say, now I see how an Agile team works. And then second of all, in the story, we recognize that this simple team that that started is just the beginning of the transition to an agile enterprise and that the team and the leader of the team is constantly making notes of things that are going to have to improve in the organization if the entire company is going to become an agile enterprise. So number one, how do we get teams to work the way teams should work? And second of all, as we're in that process, how do we start looking forward to what it's going to take to scale Agile, to create an Agile enterprise, and make note of the things that are going to have to change if it's really going to take hold? You point out in your book that copying other organizations can be problematic when pursuing an Agile initiative. What are the issues with copycatting? Ah, copying. It comes under so many different names. A lot of people will call it benchmarking. A lot of people will call it fast following, but it's copying. (laughs) And the logic of copying is just so seductive because you can look at some of the early pioneers like Spotify And they've spent years learning and applying Agile principles. So why not just replicate everything that they're doing in six months? And I think particularly enticing is the idea that all you have to do is adopt their organization structure and their office designs. And we'll have squads and tribes and chapters and guilds and Certainly, if we change the boxes and layouts, then that will force changes in how people approach their work, and that, in turn, will change the way they work, and that will change the outputs and the outcomes, and that will succeed. What could possibly go wrong? And I feel a little bit like saying, how could that go wrong? Let me count the ways. because. For one, human organizations like human bodies are very complex systems. And that means that variables interact differently in different environments. So medications, for example, that work for some patients can be very harmful to other patients. And managers who try to paste the structures of innovation departments from one company onto the entire enterprise of their company are bound to produce unintended consequences. It just has to produce unintended consequences. And I I think they fail to recognize that companies like Spotify have developed their model based on 
their specific engineering culture. It capitalized on the trust and the collaboration that was inherent in their R&D department's values. And it just doesn't work to take it out of that context and put it into your own. I think another problem is that org charts just do not convey how work really happens inside a company. I could show you the org charts of two or three different companies, and you'd say, boy, it looks like they must have the same culture, the same ways of working. And I would say, absolutely not. Let me get beneath this org chart to show you how things work. And it's the it doesn't capture the culture. It doesn't capture the ways of working. So I, I think actually the biggest problem, though, is that what we believe in Agile is that the learning, the growth that comes from testing and experimenting and adapting that's the value of Agile, building this culture of learning and adaptation. And the biggest problem with copycats is that they haven't learned the keystone of Agile success, the ability to continuously learn and evolve and improve and grow. They try to shortcut the process. And in that process, they fail to develop the skills for adapting and customizing and harmonizing all the elements of an operating system. They've just copied somebody else. And when it doesn't work, they don't really know what to do about it because this was supposed to work. So they just try to force fit it and make it work. It's really sad to watch. We've had to unwind a number of those kinds of situations. You know, Daryl, uh, c- compared with uh, traditional management approaches, I was wondering what major benefits does Agile offer? Yes, Agile has some wonderful benefits. Now, it has weaknesses as well, and I wouldn't want to overlook those, but the benefits are, number one, it minimizes the waste that's inherent in redundant meetings, the meetings, preparing for meetings, preparing for meetings. If you look at how much time most people in an organization spend getting ready for an hour with the executive committee. It's pathetic. It is hundreds of hours just getting ready for that meeting to get ready for another meeting. And the repetitive planning. So we develop a plan nine months in advance of the time we're going to implement it. And it's out of date two months later, so we replan. We still haven't gotten to doing anything, but we replan, and that takes more time. And then we replan, and then we replan. It's not unusual in companies now to find people starting their strategic planning process in the spring or the summer of the year for the winter of the next year. It's six or nine months of just planning and excessive documentation and It's a complete waste of time that is outdated as soon as it's done. So Agile avoids a lot of that. It does plan, but it doesn't plan in detail things that are going to be outdated by the time we start getting around to implementing them. 
And Agile improves visibility. It's continually adapting to customers changing priorities. It improves customer engagement, customer involvement. It improves customer satisfaction. It brings the most valuable products and features to market faster and more predictably. It reduces risk. And by engaging team members with multiple disciplinary expertises as collaborative peers, it broadens organizational experience and it builds mutual trust and respect. It avoids some of the name calling of people making fun of the bean counters again or referring to the to the legal department as the sales prevention department. I hear all of these things regularly, but on agile teams, you say, look, I can't talk about all lawyers, but we work with Sam here and Sam is terrific. Part of the team, we respect them. And so people develop general management skills. And by reducing the time that gets squandered by senior executives on micromanaging functional projects, it really lets senior managers devote themselves to the higher value work that only they can do. And not trying to do things 2% better than subordinates could do it, doing things that if they don't do it, nobody else can do it. Daryl, in your book, you present a thought experiment. Imagine that you were charged with designing an autonomous vehicle to drive from Minnesota to Florida. You have two options. Uh, Would you elaborate on this thought experiment and how, more importantly, does it illustrate the value of using an agile approach? Good. Well, let me tell you the point first. And the point is that traditional innovation counts on predict, command, control innovations. That is, my job as a leader is to predict what customers are going to want two years from now by the time we get this innovation out. And therefore, I know exactly what it should look like. Now, I'm going to command you to meet the specifications of this prediction and then I am going to control you, I am gonna micromanage you to make sure that you stick to the plan so that you can deliver, I have predicted is going to be successful. Now, the only problem is that we know 70 to 90% of innovations fail. And they don't fail usually because they fail to develop the specifications that were outlined in the proposal. They fail because the specifications aren't really what customers want two years later, because so much time has passed that even if they were, even if they were right much earlier, they're wrong now. And so what we find is that consistently, two-thirds of predictions are wrong. Two-thirds. They're just wrong. And so if, if they're wrong and you force people to conform to it, you as a leader say, well, look, m- my prediction was right because they were able to meet those specifications. They were able to deliver it. You don't see everything they did to mess things up in the process, but you believe that your predictions were accurate. So the analogy that we make 
is imagine that you are charged with designing an autonomous vehicle that's going to drive from Minnesota to Florida. Now, you have two options. First is you can develop a deterministic model for the vehicle. That is, you go out, you drive the road, you study every detail of the roads between Minnesota and Florida, you predict every possible twist and turn, when the traffic lights are going to change, when pedestrians or deer might cross the road, you predict traffic accident, you predict weather conditions, and then you launch your car along with those predictions. And when the car crashes during a trial run, as it inevitably will, then you're going to get told by the boss to work harder to improve your predictive skills. What's wrong with you? How did you not foresee that light changing? How did you not see that the, the, there was going to be bad weather and traffic was going to slow? So if the vehicle were inside some tube, maybe this predict and command and control model would work. But in the real world, things get very complicated very quickly. So the second method, which is what Agile believes, is that you program the vehicle to adapt to changing conditions. So you might start, for example, by asking, why does a customer want to go from Minnesota to Florida in the first place? And maybe the answer is, I'm looking for sunshine and relaxation. Well, then you monitor hurricane conditions. And if that makes Florida too dangerous, then you reroute to California. And you anticipate the situations that could arise, and you develop sensors for measuring those situations and tracking them, and then responding appropriately if this happens or if that happens. So you're collecting data from weather centers, from traffic monitors, and from other drivers, and you build all that data from the sensors into your vehicle, and you communicate with those sensors. And if the feedback loops are good enough, and if they're short enough, and if they're sensitive enough, then the transitions will be smooth and comfortable rather than abrupt and jarring or even leading to a collision. So that's actually the way, if you look at autonomous vehicles these days, and you've probably had the chance to test some of those features as well as I have, it's pretty amazing how if you continuously adapt, continuously shortening the cycle time and the feedback, you can create an amazing experience that is far safer, far more comfortable than average humans uh, could do on their own or by trying to program something for a very long term that's unpredictable. So, Daryl, what does it mean to scale Agile? Well, I think one definition of scaling Agile is very simple, and that is you just add more and more Agile teams. You increase their number to 50 or 100 or more, and now we have teams working in lots of different functions in the company, and we learn how to tackle very large projects that take 20 or 50 teams. That's an easy definition of scaling Agile. And unfortunately, I've seen too many examples of companies that track their progress by the number of teams that they have launched. 
personally, that I believe that's a terrible way to measure your agility because the other definition of scaling agile, which for most companies is probably still on the horizon, and we would call it creating the agile enterprise, where agile at scale focuses on improving the performance of agile teams and it focuses also on improving the efficiency of operating teams. So in the Agile enterprise, it's more than an aggregation of lots of teams. They're carefully balancing the operating model so that we use Agile methods to change the business, to capitalize on unpredictable opportunities. We also run the business reliably and efficiently. And third, we harmonize these activities so that they're no longer enemies. They're not fighting each other. They're complements that make each other better. So we measure the real scaling of Agile if we can, is if we can create an Agile enterprise that runs the business reliably and efficiently, changes the business to capitalize on unpredictable opportunities, harmonizes those two activities so that even though maybe 15 or 20% of the people, that's all, are actually working on agile teams at any given time, the entire enterprise is now agile. It adapts. It handles crises more effectively than it did before. And you point out that doing this is very challenging. So I was wondering if I'm a leader, what kind of questions should I ask myself if I'm put in this situation? And are there any frameworks you can tell us about that could help individuals who are thinking about scaling up agile initiatives in their organizations? There are. Let me, I'll start with the last question first, which is what kind of frameworks are available? And there are frameworks for both running agile teams as well as scaling agile teams. So for those that are unfamiliar with agile terminology or agile methods, you will hear a lot of different kinds of agile. The most prominent form of agile is called scrum. Scrum is probably used 10 times more than any other Agile method. But you'll also hear Kanban. You'll hear XP or extreme programming. You'll hear Crystal or dynamic systems development or hybrids of all of those. But probably the one you're going to hear 60 to 70% of the time is Scrum. It's the most common. And then in the last 10 years, probably starting in about 2010, we started seeing more and more frameworks come up to help companies scale these teams. And one recent survey that I saw asked survey respondents, which methods of scaling do you use? And the four most popular frameworks were the Scaled Agile Framework, sometimes called SAFE. The second was, I don't know (laughs) what framework. The third was Scrum of Scrums, or also known as Scrum at Scale. And then the fourth framework was some internally created methods that we've developed. So there are 
others, some of the more recent entrants include the Spotify model and disciplined agile delivery and large-scale Scrum. And there are a number of these uh, that are gaining in popularity right now. But personally, I think the, the trick is they all have strengths and weaknesses. I would take a look at all of them and I would build the pieces in that fit my culture most effectively. Now, so that's one of the decisions that a senior executive has to ask themselves when they're going to launch an initiative. What kind of Agile am I going to use? Am I going to allow people to use different kinds of Agile because there are strengths and weaknesses in each of them? And I don't want to dictate it. I don't want to make this a bureaucracy. On the other hand, if we're using 10 different kinds of Agile, then we're going to need 10 different training programs. And that can create problems as well. So I think the first thing is, what do we mean by Agile and how are we going to do it? But the second thing that they really need to ask themselves is, how is my leadership style going to fit with this new way of working? How do I add value? How do I help people to learn by doing? And how do I build trust as opposed to controlling? How am I really fundamentally going to leave a legacy in this organization that helps it to become an agile enterprise? It is so easy to have a consultant come to me and say, Daryl, we have this problem. What are you going to do about it? What's the answer? And you stroke your chin and you think deeply and say, well, here's what you should do. It's a real different approach to say, that's an interesting question. What do you recommend we should do about it? What do you think we could do to test that hypothesis and put it back on people realizing the most important thing I can do is to help people grow? A lot of people think that Agile is scary because what you're going to do is blindly trust people that don't deserve your trust. If I take my hands off the steering wheel, are they going to crash this vehicle? And I do not believe that the role of a leader is to blindly trust your people. I do believe that the role of a leader is to develop people who are trustworthy. And that's a big difference. My job is not to just, through benign neglect, let people do whatever they want to do. My job is to develop people who are trustworthy. And honestly, I learned this lesson when my kids were teenagers, when they get access to the car, when they're going out with their friends. How do I create situations that show my children that I'm trying to raise them to be a responsible adult. And the more trustworthy they become, the more freedom they get, the more decisions I allow them to make on their own. And I will tell you, the greatest happiness in my life is watching my children grow into responsible adults or watching people that have worked with me 
become better partners, better consultants than I ever dreamed that I could be. So it's an amazing experience, but you have to ask yourself, how am I going to add value? What is Agile Leadership? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. My guest today is Daryl Rigby, co-author of Doing Agile Right, Transformation Without the Chaos. Daryl, what are the key characteristics of agile leadership and how does it differ from other leadership styles and approaches? We've talked about several of them, but one of the keys is that agile leadership requires humility. It's not the false humility that belittles self-confidence, but it's the sort that accelerates learning and bolsters the confidence of every team member. Humble people recognize the futility of predicting the unpredictable, and instead they build rapid feedback loops in to make sure that things stay on track. Too many leaders believe that they're only effective leaders if they can predict the future farther and more accurately than other people. And when that turns out not to be true, they try to cover it up. They try to make it look like, oh, no, I I was right all along. Somebody else messed up. And if you are unable to admit mistakes, you're unable to learn and you are doomed to be as dumb as you are today. It's an essential part of building the culture to show people that you are also learning and that you value their opinions as much as you value your own opinion and often more because they're close to the front line. So I would say, don't be afraid to admit what you've learned and remember that employees are the customers of this change process. They're not robots for executing it. Daryl, from your research, why do so many management tools become quite popular quite suddenly and then fall out of fashion? And and more importantly, can you tell us more about the four rules of the Agile road you identify in your book? Number one is, as a leader, you really have to learn to love Agile teams. You have to believe in them because people will sense whether you believe what you're saying 
uh, you know, I used to say that my kids are constantly running conjoint analyses on me of saying, Dad, will you come out and play catch with me? And I'll say, sure, as soon as I finish writing this article. Uh, and so they say, oh, okay, in the conjoint, I get it. I'm somewhere below an article. And I think employees are constantly running those conjoints on their leaders as well to find out, I hear what they say, but what do they do? What do they really care about? And so leaders have to learn to love agile teams. They have to operate their own teams as agile teams if they're going to send a strong message that they really believe in. The second thing is after mastering individual teams, they have to master agile at scale and they have to envision an agile enterprise. They have to have a vision of if this works three years from now, four years from now, five years from now, what could this actually look like? The third thing is they have to believe enough in Agile to use Agile innovation as a way to create an Agile enterprise. You do not create an Agile enterprise through bureaucratic processes and then apologize and say, gee, sorry, I had to do that. But now that I've created this new organizational structure, be agile. It never works. And the final thing that I'd say is agile should be fun. You have to make it fun. If it's not fun, you're doing something wrong because it's designed to work the way humans want to work. And if it's not doing that, stop it. Don't do things that make no sense and that seem to be making people miserable because some zealot, because some guru said this is the way it's supposed to work. You know your organization. You know how the organization works. Make it fun. Make it something that people are doing because they want to do it, but not because you're forcing them to do it. So as we close today, what prompted you to write this book and who would benefit from this book? Well, we really want Agile to become a valuable and a practical tool rather than one more frustrating fad. We truly believe that Agile mindsets and methods can make people and entirely and entire companies far happier and more successful. We want readers to look back on their Agile work in five to 10 years with a sense of pride and fulfillment, not embarrassment and disappointment. Our concern is that the faddish misuse of Agile is going to tarnish the whole idea. And that was the real motivation for writing the book. We had a number of readers in mind. One is we wanted to help those who are just beginning their Agile journey to avoid the mistakes and to develop agile attitudes and habitual behaviors that are going to create sustainable results, not chaos. We also wanted to help companies that have already begun their agile journey on the wrong foot. We hope to help it recognize and escape the, fit, the pitfalls before it's too late. Of course, we expect that a lot of agile team members are going to read this and make sure that a copy shows up on their boss's desk as a gentle reminder of, this is what we're trying to do. You, you do remember this, right? And we also expect a lot of startups 
begin using agile practices, but then when they grow up, they tend to abandon them and slip into more bureaucratic dominated cultures. And they think it's a part of, oh, that's just part of growing up and and becoming a big company. We don't believe that. And so we hope that these guidelines will help startups to build balanced agile enterprises as well as they scale their success. So in all of these cases, our real purpose is to help people build agile habits that will then improve their results and increase their happiness. We just believe it and would like to see it help people be as happy as we know they can be. Daryl, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate your time today. But how can folks get a copy of your book? The book will be available May 26th. And I I would love to have people not only pick up the book, but get back to all of us all three of the authors with their thoughts and recommendations. This isn't something we expect to end with the book. We want to continue improving the methods and improving the mindsets. So we hope that this will be a way for us to accelerate our own learning in the process. And we hope that, of course, it will help others. So thank you for inviting me to talk with you today. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Conversation with Authors, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times with Daryl Rigby, co-author of Doing Agile Right, Transformation Without the Chaos. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and end-up conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and at always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Next week on a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, host Michael Keegan focuses on leading through uncertain times with Jeremy Gutche on his book, Create the Future, Tactics for Disruptive Thinking. What are the seven traps of path dependency? How do you think disruptively, providing specific steps to create real innovation and change? How can it be used during times of uncertainty? Join host Michael Keegan next week on a special series of the Business of Government Hour, Leading Through Uncertain Times, and find out.